Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we have a gentleman who's in the food area of, of the space. He's a social innovator. He does a lot of things, but we're going to focus on that today. So welcome, Paul, and tell us about your post-secondary education experience. Certainly. So thanks so much for having me, by the way. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, I guess I would start with, you know, I studied political science uh, as well as public administration and governance at uh, Ryerson and before that York uh, for PolySci. I also went to teacher's college uh, afterwards um, and then spent some time teaching at a couple of private schools for a few years uh, before deciding to, to work at uh, nonprofits and actually started at a homeless youth shelter. But I just want to add one thing, if I may. You know, I think in our society, we have been taught to really value and prioritize paid accreditation like um, uh, university and college. Um, but for me, the most important experience that I ever had uh, was being raised in Toronto as a low-income uh, kid in a single-parent household uh, that was reliant on welfare. That is what has inspired and much of what I do and has oriented kind of my view of the world, more so than anything I ever um, read or looked at in the classroom. Well, as you know, there's two forms of education. One is in the classroom, the other is in the uh, community and at home. So mm -hmm. you're street smart as well as academically smart. Thank you. So let's move into your work experience. Certainly. So I guess, um, where do I, so I, I went on to teach, as I said, um, I worked at a homeless youth shelter. Um, it was my first foray, foray into um, the nonprofit space. And I think um, the first thing I wanted to do this because I wanted my labor to support, I think, the folks who society has consistently neglected, the folks who society passes over and systematically is made more vulnerable. So I wanted to, I was a passionate teacher and educator, but wanted my energies to be directed to, to those folks. So I, um, you know, had a, it was an interesting struggle. I remember the first day I walked into um, that nonprofit, a homeless youth shelter. And I think what I took away from that, um, those early days, is I was invited into. I think the low expectations that we have for um, street involved youth, as well as a multi tiered. Um, kind of uh, multi-tiered kind of thinking around things like access to housing, access to food, that in a lot of ways, these really were folks that had been neglected, not only by our through public policy, but also through our own institutions and systems. So I spent some time really trying to push back and be bold and work with my colleagues to kind of dream in color around what was possible and how we could rethink um, what a homeless youth shelter does and how we do it. And we had a lot of success and, you know, ultimately after I think about five years there, I went on to um, work in Vancouver, moved to Vancouver and work in um, the downtown east side of Vancouver, you know, a community that uh, I think to many has been referred to as, you know, Canada's poorest postal code. 
But I think, you know, while people might be materially poor, they, uh, my experiences there were so rich um, and the sharing and the support um, and the solidarity in that community was, was omnipresent. So I, I really learned a lot about organizing. I learned a lot about accessibility and how we, again, flip institutions, but flip them in such a way that means that they're accessible to people who are, who are underhoused, people who are homeless, people who are survival sex workers, people that are dependent on substances. I think, you know, often we think about nonprofits as providing services to those folks. We don't think about nonprofits as being owned and directed by those folks. Um, uh, so so I, I, I learned a lot there. Um, and then ultimately, you know, um, made my way back to, to Toronto after some time in Vancouver um, and uh, was elated to have the opportunity to return to my hometown um, and uh, head up an organization that I had uh, an immense respect for in Food Share Toronto. Okay, so that's quite a journey from teaching to uh, being an executive director of a well-known organization. So... Indeed. So tell us a little more about FoodShare, what it does and what the programs are and for sure. So I guess the first thing I'll say is, um, you know, Foodshare, where Foodshare started. It started as a result of, of the recession. Um, so in 1985, then Mayor, um, uh, Toronto Mayor Art Eggleton proposed a pilot program aimed at combating hunger in the city of Toronto. It was an emerging issue and, and uh, our, our elected officials and folks in community were trying to figure out what do we do? How do we support people? So um, the pilot was called Food share um, and it, it what it did is it had volunteers uh, we call it the hunger hunger hotline um, or uh, eventually food link but we had volunteers who um, would take phone calls from people who wanted to donate um, surplus food <clears throat> And then we also took calls from folks who were in need of food that we then were able to connect to emergency food providers now, I, I would imagine, you know, this is 1985, so the first food bank in Canada opened in 1981, so this is four years after that. And uh, there was a really kind of sharp turn, I think, in, in Foodshare's approach to work. And I would imagine, I'm going to assume that it was based on kind of looking at the type of food that was being made available at, um, through traditional food banks and the emergency food sector not a lot of nutrient-dense fruit and vegetables, that sort of thing. So Foodshare later started exploring how to connect local farmers to low-income people through a variety of interventions. And I think, you know, many of our initiatives emerged from there um, and, and uh, was the basis for much of our work, I would say, into the 90s and the early 2000s. We then started to have, I think, as an organization, big conversations about uh, recognizing that um, food is a fundamental human right. And what does that mean for our programming? What does that mean for how we think about our work? And then what does that mean in terms of what we can't do and where government should pick up in terms of their responsibility? So I guess one thing I'll, I'll also add is that I get this question a lot, um, but food share is not a food bank. We do not give away anyone's leftovers. Um, 
you know, we are in, we work at, you know, we're a food justice organization. So we're also, we're looking at dismantling the oppressive structures that cause food inequities. We're looking at investing in communities that have been chronically underfunded, um, underinvested in, and, and largely neglected. And these are communities that are typically uh, Black, Indigenous, and other racialized communities. So what we do is we support the communities to develop uh, community-led food assets. So everything from, you know, turning a sprawling grassy hydro corridor into an urban farm in the Flemington Park community uh, to transitioning, you know, a school field without, you know, a school without any sports teams. We took that field at Burnham Thorpe Collegiate and turned it into a two-acre urban farm and a weekly community produce market. And we've also helped develop over 50, just about 50 uh, communities across the city of Toronto to develop what we call good food markets. So they're subsidized produce markets. We call them good food markets, but they're subsidized produce markets that actually look a lot like farmers markets, uh, but prioritize access, affordability, and culturally relevant produce instead of a sole focus on local food. So in essence, we support access to produce for folks that have had barriers to access foisted upon them time and time again. So you can tell that I have not um, mastered, nowhere near mastered an elevator speech or pitch for the work of Food Chair because it's vast um, and it's nuanced. And we realize, you know, at times really requires a bit more um, uh, conversation and context to kind of set the stage for what it is that we do. So you have a food box, is that correct? We do. So, so one tell of the me about that. For sure. We started in 1994. Uh, it's called the uh, Good Food Box. Um, and what it is, is again, it was birthed out of this kind of thinking. How do we connect local farmers to um, low-income folks who deserve and have a right uh, to access fresh produce? So over the years, you know, we really took a look at this and realized that... Um, you know, a num an, increasing, an increasing number of folks engaged with a good food box had higher incomes. So we were realistic and said, you know, many of our interventions are connecting with low-income folks. This one is decreasingly so. So we realized when we asked people, there were some surveys and evaluations done. We asked people why they buy the box. And many of them said they were supporting food share, supporting local farmers, um, and those sorts of things. So we, we pivoted and said, you know, this is more of a social enterprise. And in 2019, I think it was, maybe even 2018, whew, it's, it's been a whirlwind, but um, I think it was 2019, January 2019, we brought it online. Um, and change the model uh, quite a bit. We introduced door-to-door -door delivery. Um, so anyone in the city of Toronto, and now even a part of Mississauga, can jump online and order a good food box and have it delivered to their home. Uh, and you can imagine how important that's been in the context of the pandemic. Um, but I'll also maybe add two other things about the good food box. I guess one, I, I talk about the pandemic. Um, we also realized that, um, you know, at, at the onset of the pandemic, we were hearing reports of something near something like 40% of food banks in the city of Toronto were being forced to close. And we said, well, wait a minute, we are out delivering produce to folks who are purchasing it um, and delivering it to their doors. Um, we've got some, uh, we've got the infrastructure that could allow us to pivot. So for the first time in Food Share's history, we started 
you know, raising money to distribute, in essence, free food. Um, so the exact same box that someone was purchasing, um, filled with uh, fresh produce, was going to homes uh, of people who were hardest hit by the pandemic. So we've been able to distribute over well over a million pounds of produce, hired close to 60 new people, provided those workers with a $4 an hour increase from the moment that the pandemic uh, hit, introduced paid sick days and the like. Um, and then the other thing I'll add about the Good Food Box, which I think really um, underscores our, our commitment to justice and dismantling systems, is that we recognize that we're buying millions of pounds of produce each year. That's a lot of money we're spending on produce. So we're really ha having a rethink around who um, who are we directing those funds to? So we recently launched, I think last summer we launched, or summer before that, we launched something called the Dismantling White Supremacy Good Food Box. And it's a food box filled with local produce grown by Black, Indigenous, and racialized growers um, across the city. And it um, pretty much sold out every week. So really spoke to, I think, um, a desire for folks to say, we want to support racialized farmers that are under under supported and under acknowledged so uh, there are not many farms in toronto so where do you get your produce from good question well there are actually a growing number of urban farms i would say um so we buy our produce from you know what we try and do again is really think about how do we use our buying power to support the maximum you know to make the to have the most significant impact so we will buy produce from you know a group with an acre plot um uh, right up onto you know larger farms just outside of the city and then we also buy a fair bit of our produce from the food terminal because you know, uh, you know, our, our, our in particular, you know, the good food markets. You know, while I say they look a lot like um, farmers markets, we're focused on you know making sure that um, low-income communities have access to affordable. Uh, produce, but also international produce, because we recognize that, you know, for some, you know, a mango is really important for folks and their their desire to feel at home. Um, so, so we have a kind of a different approach and, and it's a combination of local and international produce that comes together to form uh, the Good Food Box and, and uh, all of our programs. What about delivery? Yeah, so we do the delivery ourselves. We've got a fleet of vehicles that are out on the road every day. Um, and, and these are folks that have been out on the road every day, including during the pandemic. Um, I have just such huge appreciation and respect for, you know, our essential workers and the risk that they're taking to make sure that, you know, Torontonians continue to have access to um, produce that isn't based on a profit model um, and has layers and layers of profit and you know we know that um, especially during the pandemic prices uh, were fluctuating greatly and in some cases when we're overly reliant on the, the profit model what we're doing is we're, we're paying for a ceo's third or fourth cottage we're increasing shareholder dividends um, and that's not um, the work that food shares in, in, in we're, we're not a for-profit so food share is interested in how do we keep our prices as a as low as possible so that people can afford this beautiful produce that we're, we're making available. We don't take any donations. People contact me all the time to say, I've got a pallet of cucumbers or whatever it is. And we say, that's all good and well. That's not our work. Um, there are other groups that do that work. 
Um, we are really, everything that goes into our box is something that we purchased from a farmer somewhere. So Paul, talk about your employees, where you find them, how you recruit them, how you train them, and sure. how, how you recognize the contributions they're making. Yeah, so I guess, you know, we, it, start, it actually goes back to the beginning of our conversation. You know, when we talk, when we think about systemic racism uh, and anti-indigeneity and some of those pieces and think about the impact they have on who has the ability to access a post-secondary degree, we recognize that, um, you know, it, it's not, access isn't necessarily equal. So one of the things, not everyone can afford to live in a community outside of their home for four years and pay the tuition and pay the housing costs and all of, and food costs and all of those pieces. So um, we have actually deprioritized things like paid accreditation. Um, you know, very few of our jobs actually was more of a priority is that someone has lived experience of the issue that we're working on and they recognize the urgency and they recognize that you know, we've largely constructed in this country a two-tier food system where if you're low income, you know, what we send to people is other people's leftovers. In essence, we're telling low income people that they're walking compost bins. So that, so what we really want to do is engage with people that are coming from a justice orientation that um, recognize that that way of looking at, at um, low income people is unacceptable. Um, so we are often hiring from the folks that we're connected to through our partnerships. We um, make an intentional um, uh, reach out to groups that we work with that we know uh, are already working with folks in equity deserving communities. How some of the things we've done to really recognize our colleagues is to be very honest and blatant about, uh, or intentional, excuse me, about um, things like pay. You know, we have a transparent pay grid. Uh, the senior leadership team and I and our, and our managers, the last time we did our pay grid review, we wanted to make sure that um, we're using our limited resources to have the biggest impact on the folks that are struggling in our city the most, who are that are our colleagues. So we gave a 25% increase to the lowest paid workers and saw no increase, and, uh, and it provided no increase for our senior leadership team. And for us, that's really about challenging income inequality and demonstrating that we're all in this work together. It's not just a slogan that we say at a meeting or something like that. It's putting those things into action. We also have um, lowest paid to highest paid ratio. The highest paid worker at FoodShare can make no more than 3.7 times what the lowest paid worker makes. These are the types of things that demonstrate, I think, that we're in this together and that um, we're, we're acting in solidarity to tackle the issues that matter to all of us. And I think our, our colleagues have really responded well to that and really appreciate that. And my goodness, these are folks who are working incredibly hard. And when it comes to our essential workers, like I say, taking pretty significant risk. So, Paul, uh, you've touched on this briefly, but could you expand on the importance of partnerships to your organization? Yeah. So... I guess, you know, FoodShare has been around for quite a while. Um, we're, we've grown to be, you know, or maybe a medium, depending on um, where you're looking, but maybe a medium-sized organization, I would say. So we've got some capacity um, and some experience. So what we do is, you know, FoodShare works hard 
to lend our capacity directly to support um, groups, grass-led groups, small community organizations, small community groups that are often um, led uh, by folks from equity-deserving equity groups or serving folks from equity-deserving groups. Um, and we have something called our Supportive Partnership Platform, where we actually yeah, identify some resources that go specifically to supporting those groups to meet their um, self-determined goals around food access, food sovereignty, those sorts of things. And then, you know, since the pandemic began, one of the things we did, I talked about um, us raising money to be able to distribute produce, uh, the Good Food Box, to folks in uh, uh, hardest hit by the pandemic across the city. We did that through, you know, forging uh, between 80 to 90 uh, partnerships with grassroots groups and organizations across the city. Um, you know, groups like the Workers' Action Center, groups like Maggie's that works with sex workers, groups like um, Black Lives Matter Toronto. Um, so really intentional partnerships. And what we did is said, there's no fancy form, there's no long application. You tell us who you work with and who we need to deliver produce to each week. And this is how much money that we can make available uh, to your groups to do that. Um, and each week they would send us lists and our drivers would be out across the city just delivering that produce to folks, uh, no questions asked. And like I say, the exact same box uh, that people were purchasing. So that wouldn't have been possible, it continues to this day and, and wouldn't have been possible and isn't possible without those partners and um, really working with us to identify who, who do we need to make sure that we're prioritizing support for. So like I say, thanks to our essential workers, folks growing, packing, and delivering produce, we've been able to distribute well over a million pounds pretty much in every corner of the city. So, so partnership has been pretty significant. Yeah. Paul, uh, earlier today, and for those that are listening, I sent Paul an email talking about a couple of organizations, uh, Ghost Kitchens and... Uh, the neighbor, Grocery Neighbor, hmm. which are a couple of really interesting organizations that, uh, that we, I could connect you with. And there is a podcast on both of those organizations. But uh, I, wanted to, I want to address the fact that you're Toronto. Mm -hmm. Have you explored the area of social franchise in other communities across Canada and even into the United States. You have a model that is proven. Hmm. You have operations and marketing and people management. Have you considered taking that social franchise and expanding it? That is an important question and one that we have asked ourselves. I think we have a model that works um, uh, from, from our perspective, uh, you know, from, for the city of Toronto. And it's really important, you know, um, I work with an Indigenous advisory circle at FoodShare, and we're really trying to, you know, decolonize our approach to this work in a lot of ways. So we, our model is really, hey, we're happy to share about some of the things that we're doing. And if other communities want some support, other jurisdictions, we hear from people all over the world um, who have come across uh, something that we do and would like support in doing it, we're not interested really in in 
deciding uh, what's going to work in communities um, uh, outside of the one that we're working. Even even in our work in Toronto, we don't decide. It's the same model where we talk to share with local leaders about our approach, and they decide if something fits and if we can help them build and develop something that they own and that they um, are, are the leaders of instead of models that look to export food shares logo all over the the country or all or all over the world we're we're really most focused and, and i think that's an important question because you know i think in the nonprofit industrial complex we 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 sometimes don't recognize we lose sight of what it is sometimes we're trying to accomplish and we sometimes start to think about building empires um, because we see the thing working in a certain place and um, ex exporting those ideas and imposing those ideas on communities. Um, and we're really trying not to do that. We're trying to work in solidarity as much as we can um, alongside communities in our city and, and beyond. Okay, so here's another interesting question. Three years from today, what is Paul Taylor going to be doing and what is FoodShare going to look like? Good question. Now, hopefully, we may be doing the same thing. I imagine that we will be. You know, I think both FoodShare and myself will continue to aim high uh, uh, when it comes to um, dreaming in color and tackling the issues that are before us and really doing our best to... Um, uh, hone in on these issues of food insecurity and poverty and recognizing that only so much can happen at the community level. You know, 65% of people in this country that are food insecure have jobs. They are working. So, you know, there's only so much that charity can do. We really need effective public policy. And that's something that um, we've really been lacking. Um, you know, an example is the minimum wage uh, that was meant to increase in Ontario to $15. That would have had a significant impact on uh, levels of food insecurity in this country, um, more so than, you know, any donated peanut butter and jelly. So I think that myself and FoodShare will be continue to, continuing to aim high and continuing to work in solidarity with communities across the city and beyond to demand political leadership on the issues that we're working on uh, because the communities that we work with deserve that. This country deserves that. So uh, I can see us uh, continuing to speak loudly about these issues in three years and, uh, like I say, demanding more political leadership on them. So advocacy will become a, a greater role maybe now that you've got the operation of food share nailed down. Yeah, it has to be. It really has to be because I think, and this goes to my earlier point, you know, nonprofits can become focused on just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and taking on new programs and initiatives and trying to bend and jump and twist to de demonstrate innovation to funders. We're really not interested in that. We're interested in tackling food insecurity and poverty. Um, and like I said, working alongside the communities most affected by those issues to tackle them. So advocacy is, um, you know, really central to what we do. Do. We've, um, you know, uh, in, in, introduced some staff positions solely focused on advocacy um, and public education around things like the right to food. Uh, so that's uh, really exciting for us. So, Paul, how do people reach your organization? Where do they find you? 
Yeah, we're on social media on all the platforms, uh, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, and we, you know, our website is pretty vast. There's uh, lots of um, resources on our website that folks can can take a look at if they're thinking about, you know, starting their own good food market in their community, oh, a whole host of things. But foodshare.net um, is the best place to, to go to, to learn more about our work or just uh, check it out on social media as well, Foodshare Toronto. Thank you, Paul. You're a great social innovator. You run a great social enterprise. And you're not stopping, and you're passionate about what you do. And that's what uh, really makes a difference in terms of your giving back to community. So thank you for joining us today. My absolute pleasure, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great speaking with you this morning.